0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today we get to hear a lecture by Dr. Darrell Bach. Darrell Bach has taught for many years at Dallas Theological Seminary He's the author of more than 30 books, many commentaries, including really classic commentaries on Luke and Acts. He's one of the very best historians of New Testament and early church Christian origins that I know. He's a wonderful speaker, a great communicator of the gospel, very concerned about communicating the gospel in the wider dimensions of culture as well. The lecture we're going to hear is actually from Beeson Divinity School, uh, and he he gave it here in our own chapel. It's on the Gospel of Judas. A few years ago, this document was unearthed, a lot of publicity it received about the Gospel of Judas. Many claims were made about it, uh, which seemed to contradict or pull against the historic claims of the New Testament. Well, Dr. Darrell Bach has delved into this document, its history. Uh, its publication, and he gives us a lecture called Gospel Hype, H-Y-P-E, Gospel Hype, A Look at the Gospel of Judas. I think you're going to love this lecture and learn a lot from it. Let's go to Hodges Chapel, our friend Dr. Daryl Bach.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, the topic this morning is the Gospel of Judas I was teasing with some of the people that uh, you might think these are the biblical lectures. By the time you're done, you might think they're the anti-biblical lectures because I'm going to spend so much time talking about what other people believe. But I still think it's valuable. I, you know, I've, this is like my third or fourth time here, and I've learned that everything is, is Trinitarian. And I was trying to figure out how I could do the lectures in a way that would connect to a Trinitarian theme. And I was all set up. I have three lectures You know, but I can't, I can't honestly argue that Judas relates to the Father and that the last week is going to relate to Jesus and then Orthodoxy is going to relate to the Spirit. So the best I can do is to suggest a name change for the school. And that is, you ought to really spell it Beeson. B-E-E-E-S-O-N. Then you can have one E for each member of the Trinity and the whole thing will work. So, uh, anyway. What I want to do today is to talk about the Gospel of Judas. This uh, find was made public last year, and it's an important find. And I'm just going to dive right in. Uh, this the, these lectures are part of a um, book that I'm working on with a colleague, Dan Wallace. That book is entitled "Dethroning Jesus." It'll be out around Christmas time, and uh, the subtitle is "A Look at the Public Claims About the Christ." And what we have done is we have isolated six claims made in the public sphere, all of which have made the bestseller list in books in the last five years, all of which we think are patently false. And we're going to go through and analyze them one at a time, uh, and that way uh, you can kind of be up to speed. So the claim that we're dealing with here is that the secret Gnostic Gospels like Judas really show the existence of early alternative Christianities. That's the claim we're going to be dealing with. And I start off with a citation from Marvin Meyer, who is professor of Bible and Christian studies at Chapman University on the West Coast. And he writes this in the introduction to the book on the Gospel of Judas. And this is what he says. This perspective of the Gospel of Judas is different in a number of respects from that of the New Testament Gospels. During the formative period of the Christian church, numerous Gospels were composed in addition to the New Testament Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Among other Gospels that have survived as a whole or in part are the Gospel of Truth and the Gospels of Thomas, Peter, Philip, Mary, the Ebionites, Nazareans, the Hebrews, and the Egyptians, to name a few. And these Gospels demonstrate the rich diversity within early Christianity. Diversity is another way to talk about alternative Gospels. The Gospel of Judas was yet another of the gospels written by early Christians as they attempted to articulate in one way or another who Jesus is and how one should follow him and the quote ends there. And probably no one has done more group has done more made more of an effort to present these gospels uh, to the public than people who hold to one form or another of what I am calling this week Jesusanity. And so it's worth taking a look at this material and look and a look at what people are saying about it. And so to do that, I want to begin with a citation from Elaine Pagels, who teaches at Princeton University, and who said this in a New York Times op-ed piece on April 8th a year ago. For nearly 2,000 years, most people assumed that the only sources of the tradition about Jesus and his disciples were the four Gospels in the New Testament. But the unexpected discovery, new finds, in 1945 of more than 50 ancient Christian texts proved what the church fathers said long ago, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are only a small selection of gospels from among dozens that circulated among early Christian groups. And now the gospel of Judas, like the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Mary Magdalene, and many others, opens up new perspectives on familiar gospel stories. She goes on to say this in the same piece. What in the Gospel of Judas, published this week by the National Geographic Society, Disclosure, I am a consultant on the project, she's talking about herself, goes back to Jesus' actual teaching and how would we know? And what else was there in the earliest Christian movement that we had not known before? These are some of the difficult questions that the discoveries raise for us, issues that historians are already debating. What is clear? is that the Gospel of Judas has joined the other spectacular discoveries that are exploding the myth of a monolithic Christianity and showing how diverse and fascinating the early Christian movement really was. So whatever else we say about the Gospel of Judas, whether it connects us to Jesus or not, whether it goes back all the way the first century or not, what it does is explode the myth that in the beginning there was one Christianity. Now, Pagels goes on and says correctly that this new work is a good example of a Gnostic gospel. But our other questions need probing. Are such texts really examples of alternative Christian expressions that take us back to Jesus and his teaching? Is that claim really historically credible? Are the roots of Christianity and the ties to Jesus to be found here? And my argument is is that a careful analysis of Judas allows us to take a close look at that claim and I think will show that the claim lacks Foundation. In fact, I often call the discussion about alternative Christianities in these Gnostic Gospels conversation stoppers. You go to talk about Jesus, and someone says, and this will be true of the people that you lead as well, be especially true of them. Hopefully, after this lecture, you won't have this problem. But they'll say, You know, haven't you heard about all those other Gospels that never made it in the Bible, but perhaps should have? And if they do not know anything about this material, That's a conversation stopper. They're caught dead in their tracks right there. And so my argument and my contention is if people would just be exposed to this material and show what it teaches, then you will understand why it shouldn't be a conversation stopper. And that's what I'm going to try and do with you in the hour that we have. Now, Pagel's claim, as I mentioned, is that we have a diverse and fascinating early Christian movement as a result of this text and the texts that are like it. The beauty of the Gospel of Judas is it's short. It's seven pages long, but it also is typical of the Gnostic Gospels as a whole, so it makes a good sample study to work with. N.T. Wright said this about the Gospel of Judas. The publication of a new piece of evidence is therefore always a matter of celebration. Evidence is evidence. What we make of it is another matter, and as we shall see, but the fact of a document emerging from the mists of history carries the same frisson he's British, so allow him a little freedom in his vocabulary – as a mysterious stranger arriving at our doorstep with an unexpected, important-looking letter. We are instinctively and rightly eager to know what the new evidence is, where it came from, and how to interpret it. And so that's what we hope to do today, is to take you through this idea. But first, I have to deal with the idea of monolithic Christianity, Another key point is what monolithic Christianity is. Is this to be taken as a synonym for the idea that Christianity had certain central teachings that go back to Jesus and his followers? Is there a core to this earliest form of the faith? Most importantly, do such historical debates matter today? Are they the stuff of ivory tower debate? Does it matter if Jesus and the Christian faith are defined by the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or by Judas, or by all of them. In one sense, the description of monolithic Christianity for the New Testament period risks being an oversimplification. The books within the New Testament do reflect a level of diversity, but they also have a core theology that holds them together. That is, Jesus Christ is the Lord and is the key to redemption through his person, teaching, and work. Remember that Jesus' anody simply claims that his teaching is of value, but there's nothing particularly central about his person or his work other than the teaching. The real question is whether the diversity of early belief had a point where one crossed a line where what was present was not seen as being in the faith, but outside of it because of the level of distinctiveness in its views. In other words, if you look at the New Testament, we see some variation in emphasis, but we also see a core that is there. That's what I'm claiming. And if you did not hold to this core, then were you perceived as being outside? Or was the situation that we had a variety of Christianities in the first century and they all kind of just coexisted side by side? Yeah, they fought a little bit, that kind of thing. But really, it all they're all various and legitimate expressions of, that grew out of Jesus' ministry. We have hints of this kind of a line being drawn already in the New Testament materials before there was a functioning, organized collection of New Testament works. One of the keys to alternative Christianities is the idea that the canon is light. And whether that lightness is put in the last part of the 2nd century, the early part of the 3rd century, the early part of the 4th century, or the middle part of the 4th century, the idea is, is that Christianity didn't have a means Orthodoxy didn't have a means of exercising its control and authority over theology until there was a functioning canon. And because the functioning canon was late, we had this variety early. But my contention is is that we see lines being drawn even in the New Testament. Paul complains about what he calls Judaizers insisting on circumcision for anyone, Jew or Gentile, who believes Galatians 1. And he certainly has some nice things to say about that view. Things like, if anyone preaches a gospel other than the one that I am preaching to you, let him be accursed. Hebrews says much the same thing for those Christians who wish to make a full return to Judaism and its sacrificial system, Hebrews 6-10. to Paul also insists that not to believe in a bodily resurrection, a teaching Greek culture would generally deny, is not to believe in what the apostles taught, 1 Corinthians 15. This example is important because it affirms in an orthodox teaching about Jesus' work going back to the apostles in a period in the middle 50s, long before the rise of Gnosticism in the early 2nd century or the defenses of the faith by Irenaeus in A.D. 180. 1 John declares that the person who argues Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh is outside the dividing line, 1 John 1 and 2. A look at Judas will be revealing... For this question of where a line might have been drawn as well. So that sets the backdrop. I think there is a discussion. Here are the questions I want to pursue. To what exact period do these texts belong, particularly this text, the Gospel of Judas? Which periods or locales do they enlighten and influence? What do they actually teach in full context rather than simply, if you will, cherry picking ideas out of them? And how did such entire works actually function? That's part of what we're going to look at as we look at this material. And I've already talked about monolithic Christianity, that that has a danger of being an oversimplification, that the books within the New Testament do reflect a level of diversity. But the real question is whether there was a diversity that existed and whether there was a line drawn in the sand at certain points where someone who crossed over that line would be viewed as outside the faith. And so now we come to the manuscript itself, and let's talk a little bit about its background and what it represents. Testing on the manuscript indicates that it comes from the late 3rd or 4th century. It is also likely that this manuscript belongs to a work in the 2nd century, since Irenaeus apparently cites it in A.D. 180, in Against Heresies, Book 1, Chapter 31. More precisely, its detailed presentation of creation reflects a developed Gnosticism, which belongs to the 2nd century, this date makes it clear that the gospel's origin is too late to be authentically from Judas. Be difficult anyway, he kind of passed off the scene pretty quickly after the after the crucifixion. It consists of 33 folios that comprise 66 pages of manuscript. It is written in Sahidic Coptic, a dialect of Egyptian hieroglyphics that mostly uses Greek-like letters. It survives with 85 to 90% of the original intact. And as such, it gives us a direct look at one strand of Gnostic Christianity from the second century. Now that raises the question, what did the Gnostics teach? And again, this is noted in detail elsewhere, but to summarize, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word for knowledge or gnosis. It refers to a faith where some believers have inside knowledge about the faith, works with mysteries. This includes the ideas that the world of ideas and spirit are good, but the physical world is bad. That there is no resurrection of the body, that what counts in understanding is that the spirit lives inside of us and that we need to find it and returns to heaven as a form of light. And all other ideas about our existence are described as ignorant. This was the alternative faith expressed in the second century. And there also were views tied to the creation that I'm going to go into when we hit Judas that are important here. So now we look at the gospel itself. And what does the gospel itself tell us? There's Gnosticism, refers to a faith where some believers have inside knowledge. The ideas of spirit, uh, ideas and spirit are good. Physical world is bad. That's the dualism. There's no resurrection of the body. The creation that was created was irretrievably corrupt and could not be redeemed. And here comes Judas. And we're going to go through selected portions of this to give you a feel for it and to give you a sense of what's going on. The introduction. The gospel begins with a brief introduction, often technically called an insipid. It declares this work is a revelatory word or the account of the declaration Jesus spoke in conversation with Judas three days before the Passover. The events in this gospel take place in a 48 hour period. The note about a revelatory word is common in such material. The gospel of Thomas begins similarly by its appeal to the presence of mysteries and the highlighting of unique Revelation being presented to Thomas alone in saying 13. In saying 13 of the Gospel of Thomas, it's the equivalent of the Caesarea Philippi scene in the Gospels. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And one person says, you are a transcendent being, and the other one says, you are, in effect, an angel, and the other one says, you are a philosopher. And then Thomas says, it's indescribable who you are. And then Jesus replies, saying, you have drunk from the babbling brook. You singular, only talking to Thomas. You have drunk from the living water is what that means. And then he takes Thomas aside and he begins to whisper secrets to him because Gnosticism about secrets and secrets are really cool. And so if some people know stuff that other people don't, that's really neat. So he tells them all these secrets. And then Thomas comes back to the boys. And the boys want to know, because inquiring minds want to know, what did he tell you? And he says, if I told you, you would pick up stones. And if you pick up stones, they would consume you. And so if the gospel of Thomas had made it into our canon today, we might be telling the story of the crispy apostles. The point is, I'm not telling you. The Lord has told me secrets and you're not able to bear what I'm going to tell you. In fact, you would view them as blasphemy. And the, and the book of Thomas shows a division within the apostles that the gospel of Judas is also going to show. Now, the next section in Judas is the overview of Jesus' ministry. In this section, the gospel describes the ministry of Jesus involving miracles and wonders for salvation, as well as the calling of the twelve disciples. Jesus also reveals mysteries about two topics, things beyond the world and what would take place at the end. At this point, the first unusual note of our gospel is struck. Jesus often did not appear to the disciples as himself, but sometimes was, quote, Found "...was found among them as a child." Unquote. In the extra-biblical passages, Jesus appears as a child in such texts when he is revealing things. For example, the Apocryphon of John, which is the extra-biblical gospel that was most copied at Nag Hammadi. It appears in four copies. And the Gospel of Thomas, saying four, which says, "...the person old in days won't hesitate to ask a little child seven days old about the place of life, and that person will listen." That's going to be an interesting scene. For many of the first will be last and will become a single one. Ehrman suggests that a phantom might be met, but that is less likely given these parallels. The point is, is that in the eschaton, everyone's going to share the same kind of knowledge, and age won't matter. Jesus laughs at the disciples' prayer of thanksgiving. That's the next scene. This scene involves one of the more unusual and common features in the Gnostic Gospels. It is a laughing Jesus who is responding to the disciples' prayer of thanksgiving. He laughs when someone is doing something out of ignorance. That is why the disciples react to the laughter and say, We have done what is right. So in other words, the disciples are praying. Jesus walks in the room, hears them praying, laughs. The disciples react because they realize that Jesus is indicating they've done something wrong. And they're convinced they've done something right by praying. This laughter indicates that they think Jesus is uh this laughter rather indicates that they think that Jesus has done uh has criticized them unfairly. Now the most famous of these scenes of laughter comes in the Apocalypse of Peter 8217 to 8315. I gave you the verses so you can check me out later. 8217 to 8315, pick up your Gideon extra gospels Bible and you'll be able to find it. When a figure laughs As the crucifixion takes place, that is a Jesus figure. Peter has a vision of Jesus laughing during the crucifixion while the nails are being nailed into the hands of the person being crucified, and he asks about it. And in the Apocalypse, Jesus explains that the laughter is from the living Jesus in heaven as the crucifixion of his substitute takes place, but he himself is not suffering, and he's laughing because he's faked them out. The laughter indicates they think Jesus is being crucified when he is not, and as that text explains... Therefore, he laughs at their lack of perception, knowing that they had been born blind. In Judas, Jesus responds, noting that they pray not from their own will, but because their God will be praised. And when the confession comes of Jesus as the Son of God, the harsh reply from Jesus is that no generation of the people that are among you will know me. Here is the first hint in this gospel that it is critical of the apostolic circle that Jesus chose. They do not know or understand him and never will. This separation of Jesus from his disciples is likely one reason this text was not widely respected among the entirety of early Christianity, but was only received by some. The disciples are angry. C1B, how would you react to this? When the disciples react with anger, Jesus notes that your God within you, close quote, is responsible for the anger. When Jesus asked for the perfect human to be brought out from them and stand before him, none of them is able to try except for Judas, the hero of our gospel. Here is his introduction as a hero. And Judas confesses Jesus by noting that this disciple knows where you have come from. And then here is the confession. Jesus is from the immortal realm or eon of the Barbello. I am not worthy to utter the name of the one who has sent you. Close quote. Two points are key to this unit. First, Judas confesses Jesus as a transcendent figure sent from beyond, clearly more than a mere human figure that some claim inhabit these Gnostic texts. Such claims are made to suggest the idea that Jesus being divine in Christianity really emerged late as an element of Christian orthodoxy. But again, the historical evidence for such teaching emerging late ignores too many first-century texts as, for example, Larry Hurtado has developed in a quite impressive way. In other words, the claim that's often made that Christianity was about a human Jesus who was made divine by orthodoxy ignores even these extra-biblical texts where the issue is Jesus is transcendent. He clearly is from above in one way or another, but he, the debate is whether he can be truly or completely human. It's the exact opposite of what's claimed. Back to Judas, what are the realm of the Barbello? To confess Jesus is from the Barbello is to confess, quote, that Jesus is from the divine realm above and is the Son of God. So Casser, Meyer, and Verst in their book on the Gospel of Judas. Barbello is, quote, the divine mother of all, who often is said to be the forethought of the Father, the infinite one. That quote and description also comes from the Casser, Meyer, and Versed book. So first, we have this transcendent Jesus confessed as a member of the Barbello. And second, we have the idea that the one who sends Jesus cannot have his name uttered. And that's related to a theme we see in the Gospel of Thomas, saying 13, that I mentioned to you just a minute ago. Teacher, my mouth is utterly unable to say who you are like. That's the confession of Thomas in the Gospel of Thomas about Jesus. In that text, Thomas confesses Jesus by noting he is not able to utter or describe who Jesus is. This description is a way of speaking of the transcendent quality of the one not being described. No words can describe him. So in contrast to the rest of the disciples, Judas in his gospel has a superior understanding of who Jesus is. Apparently, Judas possessed the divine spark and understanding the others lack. Now, next in Judas, Jesus moves to speak to Judas alone, but I'm going to skip that section along with some appearances that he makes to the disciples. And I'm going to pick up the scene where we are dealing with a vision that the disciples have that's very important to the overall picture of this gospel. Next, the disciples report a vision. This is section scene 2B report a vision they have of a great house which looks to be a reference to the temple because of the altar that also is described as a part of it. At the altar, the twelve priests present offerings for others, but this is an offering that is flawed because it includes sacrifices of one's own children or wives, while others are seen sleeping with men, slaughtering, committing deeds of lawlessness, as well as other unspecified sins. The priests invoke Jesus' name. Their deeds are described as deficient. The note to this passage indicates that it is the result of the fall of Sophia that these events take place. With this, the report about the vision ends. We're going to talk more about the fall of Sophia in a minute because in Gnostic texts, what often happens at the story of creation is is that the underling God who creates is the divine feminine and she botches the job. Jesus interprets the vision, scene 2C. Jesus' interpretation shows that the vision is an allegory for the misdirected false teaching and worship of the twelve. The twelve are described as those who have, quote, planted trees without fruit in my name in a shameful manner, close quote. He also notes that those receiving the offers at the altar are the twelve who have asked about the vision, The cattle brought as offerings are the people they serve so poorly who are sacrificed by their deeds because the twelve have led them astray. In fact, a series of leaders will follow them and will stand at the same altar, continuing their error, claiming to be like angels, performing the sinful deeds previously described. They are ministers of error. That's the twelve we're talking about. On the last day, Jesus predicts they will be put to shame. Jesus calls on them to stop sacrificing, an act that allows them to be ensnared. Then the text of Judas has a gap of some 15 missing lines, which we would love to have, but we don't. And the rest of the scene's interpretation is broken up with 17 lines missing and missing words here and there so that the rest of the scene is not clear. Nonetheless, two features dominate this passage. First, it is clear that the 12 are seen as bearers of error. The writer of this gospel is clearly opposed to what they represent. Judas is designed to challenge the twelve's credibility. In the second century, there clearly was a split among those claiming the Christian name. But notice that I said, in the second century. Thomas 13 also argues for such a challenge to the authority of the group as the twelve. And the group behind Judas wanted nothing to do with anything represented by the twelve. This is significant because this text from Judas indicates that except for Judas, there was no great split among the twelve who otherwise are seen as a social unit holding similar enough beliefs to be seen as a theological unity functioning as a unified community. Now that's interesting. We aren't looking at many fragments. We're looking at what Judas represents and the twelve. This belies the claim by some that Christianity was split into several distinct segments in the earliest period, this is a key point to make because this text is not from an early source that is tied to orthodoxy. It is testimony from the outside, or to put it in other terms that I'm going to talk about later, it is testimony from the losers. Secondly, this unit begins to testify about the role of the stars, seen as angels that bring things to conclusion. In Judas, each person has an origin and destiny to which they are related. A successful life led to a return to this star of light where their spirit would reside eternally. And now we're moving in the direction of the cosmology, which actually the, the bulk of Judas is about. The bulk of the gospel of Judas is not about Judas's relationship to Jesus. The bulk of the gospel of Judas is about creation and understanding who we are in light of that creation. Now I'm going to skip... Well, no, I can't skip this. This is Judas' vision. Judas asks about the generation seen 2D. As is often the case in these Gnostic Gospels about mysteries, the key key topics include creation in the future. Judas asks what is in store for the current generation, and Jesus responds, the souls of every human generation will die. When these people, however, have completed the time of the kingdom and the Spirit leaves them, their bodies will die, but their souls will be alive and they will be taken up. The text follows Gnostic teaching. That basic teaching is although the body completely perishes, the Spirit will live, this Alternative resurrection view we talked about yesterday. Judas asks about the other generations. The way of death and judgment is the way of those who sow no fruit. Those who are a defiled generation are those who who associate with, quote, the corruptible Sophia, the hand that created mortal people, close quote. Only souls survive. Here is a flawed work of the divine feminine Sophia, a name that is Greek for wisdom and is personified as a female in texts as far back as Proverbs 8. Her independent act led to a flawed creation. This story is repeated in the Apocryphon of John. She also created a son known either as Yaldabaoth or as Sakla, who also has a role in the creation of humanity as we shall see. With this disclosure, seen two ends. Now this is important. What is emerging is a completely different view of the world and of creation and the work of God than exists in Judaism and a distinct role for the twelve from Christianity. There also is the presence of the divine feminine here, but it is not a positive port- portrait of the divine feminine, Have some, as some have claimed this extra-biblical material offers. Rather, the divine feminine, although she exists, is a disruptive figure in the creation, being responsible for the chaos in the creation. In some, Sophia, the divine feminine, is as responsible for the is responsible for the corrupt world of matter. This divine feminine teaching would have never been acceptable to those who embrace the creation as coming only from the one true God and being good from the beginning, as Genesis one teaches. Since most of the earliest Christians came out of Judaism and accepted the Genesis creation story, this teaching about Sophia would have raised questions about the gospel of Judas or any other gospel in which such a teaching about the divine feminine existed. So here we find an important theological departure that comes from the Judas text and it helps us to explain why it never had a chance to make it into the canon. The story of creation... Its story of creation will preclude it from serious consideration. Now, Judas reports on a vision that he had. The announcement causes Jesus to laugh yet for a third time in this gospel. Jesus calls Judas the 13th spirit and asks why he tries so hard. And then he invites Judas to tell his story. And Judas tells this elaborate vision about the creation that leads Jesus to interpret the vision and to explain what's going on as Judas asks about his seed and who will be in control of the rulers of this world. And so in scene 3C, and let me move ahead here because I've got the outline and I've jumped ahead of my outline. In scene 3C, we have Jesus teaching about the creation, the spirit, and the self-generated, and this is what he says. Jesus reveals to Judas secrets no person has ever seen. Here we see the elitist character of the gospel. Judas and those who follow him know things others do not. Because Gnosticism is about secrets, and secrets are really cool if you're the only one who knows anything about them. Really. It's true. Jesus describes a boundless realm that no angel has ever seen and is where the great invisible spirit resides. The idea is reinforced as 1 Corinthians 2.9 is cited, a text that also appears in the Gospel of Thomas 17. Jesus said, I will give you what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no hand has touched, and what has not arisen in the human heart. The Valentinian Prayer of Paul, another mid-2nd century to early 3rd century Gnostic text found at Nag Hammadi, also has this idea. The unique transcendence of God, who is completely unapproachable, is common in such texts. The Apocryphon of John and the Book of the Great Invisible Spirit have this theme. The church father Irenaeus described this belief and is against heresies 129, 1-4 when he presented the view of what he called the Barbello-Gnostics. So we've known about this for a long time. The spirit now creates an angel to be his attendant. That angel is called the self-generated or the autogenes, also known as a cloud of light. This is the first of several luminaries God creates. Underling figures who also who also created as the self-generated now creates, four angels who will attend him along with myriads of other angelic figures. In the Apocryphon of John, these four luminaries have names. Harmozel, Orioliel, Daviathai, and Eleleth. Aren't you glad those didn't make it into the canon? Other texts like the Book of the Great Invisible Spirit also know such figures. They are also called an Aeon of Light, These extra-biblical Gnostic texts are dominated by the creation story of these luminaries, as we shall see. There is nothing like this in Christian canonical texts. Adamus and the luminaries, scene 3D. And now the story gets serious as we move closer to the creation of Adam. Adamus was the first cloud that no angel had ever seen. This is a reference to Adam, or at least to his prototype, However, here Adam is the exalted figure of the divine realm who will be the model for the creation of humanity on earth because there's always a model or an idea in heaven and then the copy of it on earth. Also, Seth is created here. He is the father of an exalted set of descendants called the incorruptible generation of Seth. This is why scholars regard Judas as rooted in a group known as the Sethian Gnostics. As is common in Gnostic and Neoplatonic texts, There is a perfect model extant in heaven before anything is made on earth. Seventy-two luminaries appear for this generation, followed by the creation of 360 more. This means that there are five luminaries for each of the 72. A hierarchy of angel rulers is present with layers of authority. Seventy-two heavens exist for 72 luminaries. Each luminary has five firmaments, so that 360 firmaments also exist. It's very elaborate. If you were a dispensationalist and wanted to chart this, you would have fun. The creation is in symmetrical balance. Each number is significant. Twelve points to the number of the zodiac because of the association with the stars or with the months of the year. Seventy-two is the traditional number of the nations. Three hundred and sixty-five is tied to the number of days in a solar year. So this theme is also familiar in other texts. It appears in Ignostos, the Blessed, for example. There is a dualism to this creation and to the chaos and perdition that it creates. Beyond the heavenly realm, there is the earthly copy. The next section of Judas is about this other realm. The fact that there are two realms above and below with differing quality is called dualism. And this is a basic characteristic of Gnosticism. This new realm is called the cosmos, including an area called perdition. The key ruler of this realm is called El, one of the names of the Hebrew God. Twelve rulers share the rule of this realm with him mirroring the realm above. So the God of Israel is not the unique God, the only God, the top God. He's one of a conglomeration of gods. The superior angels called rulers include Nebro, also called Yaldabaoth, and Sakla, who create the twelve ruling angels. Sakla is spelled both Sakla and Saklas in this gospel. That's going to be important when we get to the creation of Adam. When Nebro was created, his face flashed with light and his appearance was defiled by blood. This is a hint that this realm is less than perfect. The name Sakla means fool, while Yaldabaoth probably means child of chaos. His creation is also described in the Apocryphon of John. We shall hear about these rulers later, but their names tell us much about how this creation is seen from the beginning. A view of creation far different from the good creation of Genesis 1 and 2. For in this version, the God of Israel, El, is not the one true sovereign as he is in the Hebrew Scripture, but is a third-rate deity coming after the unknown God, autogenes, the four eons, and the, between the, uh, the other twelve eons. If I may use a football metaphor, El is a fourth-division God. Rulers of the Underworld. A broken line begins this section, which is 3F, which names five rulers... They are Seth, who is called the Christ, Harmathoth, Gilala, Yobel, and Adonias. They are said to rule the underworld as well as the original chaos. Now we come to scene 3G and the creation of humanity. Sacklis proposes to create a human being, quote, after the likeness and after the image, close quote. Reference to the image would be an allusion to the image of deity, although it is not likely the image of the highest God that is meant, but of some lesser God. So Adam and Eve are created, with Eve having the ultimate name of Zoe, the Greek word for life, which is also her name in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Genesis 3.20, Septuagint. Sackla tells Adam that he will live long and have children. So Sakla, not God, creates Adam in this text. It is this kind of difference with its diverse understanding of the creation of humanity from Genesis that meant this text was never recognized by the mainstream of Christianity, for Christianity emerged from Judaism and shared Judaism's view that the creation came from God, not lesser beings. Any text with a teaching like that in Judas, such as the Apocryphon of John, would have been suspect from the beginning by most Christians because of its distinct teaching about creation. The Apocryphon of John is an important text in this regard, For more copies of it were found at Nag Hammadi than any other text. This tells us it was a popular text in the Nag Hammadi collection. What is more is that when the church father Irenaeus describes the views that Christians he represented rejected... He summarizes the Apocryphon of John as a text that represents the other side. In other words, when they dug up the Nag Hammadi texts and they began to read them, and they thought these were new texts and they were understanding new things from the losers, and then they read Irenaeus to see what he was describing when he described the Gnostics, all of a sudden they recognized that what Irenaeus was describing was the Apocryphon of John. And so this isn't new material that gives us new information. It simply is material that's giving us that information directly as opposed to indirectly through Irenaeus. That's important. The next scene, scene 3H, has Judas ask about how long humans will live. Jesus does not answer the question, but asks why the question is raised. So Judas asks if the human spirit dies. Jesus replies that the angel Michael gave humans a spirit, quote, as a loan so that they may offer service, close quote. This means that the spirit inhabits a body only for a time, and then the body will die. This reality stands in contrast to the great generation, the reference to the saved generation tied to Seth. To them, the angel Gabriel granted spirits with no ruler over it. They receive a spirit and a soul that lives. And then the unit ends here with a break in the text. Next, Jesus goes on to describe the destruction of the wicked and the error of the stars. But I'm not going to go through that section. It simply adds to the cosmology. Now we come to scene 3J. And scene 3J is about Jesus speaking about genuine faith and Judas. Judas asks what those who are baptized in Jesus' name will do. Twelve lines are missing from Jesus' reply. However, Jesus says this about Judas. And this is the quotation that went around in the national press. But you will exceed all of them, for you will sacrifice the man that clothes me. Now, I hope you got the second part of that citation. You will sacrifice the man that clothes me. Jesus is not going to die, but the body that he occupies will die. This response is very reflective of Gnostic teaching. Jesus from above inhabits a body that belongs to another. There is no incarnation of Jesus. There is no spirit from above on loan to an earth. there is a spirit above on loan to an earthly body. The crucifixion does not involve Jesus' suffering, but someone else dies on the cross. This is yet another reason why this material and material like it was never seen as genuinely Christian by the most ancient Christians with whom we are familiar. Jesus then praises Judas as a raised horn and a bright star. Jesus goes on to describe the exaltation of Adam's great generation, which is from eternity. In encouragement, Jesus tells Judas to lift up his eyes, for Judas can see the star that leads him. Judas then enters a luminous cloud that appears. A voice speaks, and then five lines are missing, so it's not clear what is said. What a shame. It is clear from the sheer number of elements to this scene that it is the heart of this gospel, a narrative that is really a cosmology and revelation about the origin and fate of creation and humanity, a kind of Gnostic Genesis with all its peculiarities. It is these differences on the creation that explain why this text was never seriously seen as authentically Christian. Those texts that are conceptually parallel to it in spots, such as the Apocryphon of John and even the Gospel of Thomas, with its split among the apostles, also were never seriously regarded as reflective of Orthodox Christianity, despite some claims and hype by recent scholars that these texts evidence an alternative Christianity. Judas is evidence for such alternatives in the second century. However, its teaching also is so distinct from first century Christianity, that it is clear it never was regarded as genuinely apostolic or orthodox expression of the new faith. The gospel then closes with Judas handing Jesus over, and Jesus is arrested. And when Jesus is arrested, the gospel, in effect, ends. So let's assess the gospel of Judas with a title that I call Judas Iscariot Superstar. In the volume that the National Geographic released with the, public of, with the publication of the gospel, Bart Ehrman wrote the key essay describing Judas's theology and significance. In it, we get the perspective of a revisionist's take on this gospel. He claims that the history of early Christianity needs to be rewritten as a result of this new text. Ehrman's title for his essay suggests this. It is, quote, Christianity turned on its head, the alternative vision of the gospel of Judas. Ehrman has followed up this essay with his own recent book. Several features of Ehrman's essay title are on the mark historically. The Gospel does represent a distinct view of the Gospel and a claim about what Jesus taught. Ehrman even lists five key key themes the Gospel has that differ from the more well-known Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these are helpful because they do teach the themes and list the themes of the Gospel of Thomas. Here they are. One, the creator of this world is not the one true God. Two, the world is an evil place to be escaped. Three, Christ is not the son of the creator. Four, salvation comes not through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And five, salvation comes through the revelation of secret knowledge he, that is Jesus, provides. One other theme is key to the book. Judas Iscariot is the superstar of this story, exalted to heaven and taken there in a cloud reminiscent of the ascension of Jesus in Acts 1. As Ehrman puts it, quote, Judas is the hero, not the villain in this gospel, because he, quote, allows the divine spark within Jesus to escape the material trappings of his body to return to his heavenly home, close quote. Clearly, this work is an alternative vision of Jesus and the gospel. It is an alternative expression of those claiming an association with Jesus. Ehrman explains the alternative to Christianity this way, quote, There was, in fact, a thriving opposition to this understanding, an opposition embodied, for example, in the recent gem of a discovery, the gospel of Judas. Here is a book that turns the theology of traditional Christianity on its head and reverses everything we ever thought about the nature of Christianity, close quote. He restates the point later in his own book this way, quote, The gospel of Judas, as much as any writing from antiquity, shows that there were other points of view passionately and reverently espoused by people who called themselves Christians. These alternative views show us there were enormous struggles in early Christianity over the proper forms of belief and practice, close quote. Ehrman has a sociological explanation for how all of this took place, quote, Only one side won these struggles, the victorious side then rewrote the history of the engagement, close quote. So in Ehrman's view, history is written by the winners, and proto-Orthodoxy, that's what he calls the earliest period of Orthodoxy, won out at a later time among many equal competitors. When it became Orthodox, read the one true alternative, by an exercise of power, it eventually defined what we now call Christianity. The point is, it did so late, not during the time of those who walked with Jesus. Here is the revisionist myth of the history of Christianity, now so popular among many who hype this new version of the origin of the Christian faith. Ehrman explains it this way, In brief, one of the competing groups in Christianity succeeded in overwhelming all the others, close quote. What later became orthodoxy won more converts, decided the church's structure, the creeds, the books of the canon, and upon winning, rewrote the history of the engagement. Here is Jesus Anity's take on early Christianity. It may well be that the pot is calling the kettle black here, since there is no textual or historical evidence that what Judas represents was, quote, a thriving alternative, close quote, in the first century. What Judas does give evidence of is some variety in the second century, but that is not when the teachings of Orthodox Christianity were born, but a century later. For this earlier Orthodox version of the faith, we have ample evidence in numerous first century texts that reflect what Christianity taught and was in the first century. In fact, our survey of Judas shows how different a gospel this is from the earlier texts, And there is truth in the claim that an alternative Christianity is presented here. Everyone studying the gospel agrees with that observation. But Ehrman leaves out two crucially important keys to history associated with the debate tied to this gospel. And now I'm summing up. And these two points are the ways to deal with things like the gospel of Judas. First, this text witnesses to the debate and presence of an alternative in the second century and not the first This means that the gospel presented here does not have roots going back to the earliest period. Nothing in it gives evidence of such roots. To accept that this alternative existed in the earliest period, one must project the theology of this text back more than a century and reject the testimony of the sources that are a century earlier. Even if the four gospels do not go back to the apostles, It cannot be denied as a fact of history that these Gospels are our earliest witnesses to what Christians in the first century believed. Second, and this is most important, an observation Ehrman himself makes about the earliest Christianity undercuts any claim that the alternative expressed here has an equal claim to Christian roots. Let's listen to Ehrman again. Quote, When Christianity started out with the historical Jesus himself, It already had a set of sacred written authorities. Jesus was a Jew living or ministering predominantly in Galilee and Judea. He accepted the authority of the Jewish scriptures, especially the first five books of what Christians call the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, sometimes called the Law of Moses. Close quote. This observation is certainly correct but it carries huge implications for Judas that Ehrman simply ignores. In that already accepted authority, there already was a creation story. In it, the God of heaven and earth, the one and only God, creates. This God created and it was good at the beginning. Not only Genesis 1 and 2 shows this, but also the famous Psalms like Psalm 139. The point is this. If such a creation story existed and was seen as inspired and canonical in both Judaism and Christianity, then a gospel with a distinctive and important creation story like that in Judas would never have been considered as a possible expression of orthodoxy. Jews and early Christians would not have been attracted to a creation story where the God of Israel is a fourth-rate deity. In other words, Judas would have been seen as an alternative expression of Christianity, but one that had automatically disqualified itself by its own content. Judas possessed a deviant alternative expression of creation that was not even close to the view of the Jewish Scripture, the earliest Christianity surely accepted. By implication as well, any gospel sharing such a creation story would be disqualified. That removes much of Gnostic Christianity from consideration as a viable Christian alternative that goes back to Jesus historically. It means that however much a gem Judas is, it does not tell us a thing about the earliest form of Christianity. It means that the claims of those who promote Jesus' entity and want to add Judas to the mix of diversity have yet to show this is a view rooted in the first century. In saying this, we do not even consider the other major differences that also would have made this book suspect, and added to the suspicion, it does not reflect the earliest period. Nor do we consider the evidence assembled elsewhere that the existence of proto-orthodoxy and orthodoxy reaches back into sources of our first two centuries of Christian history, which in terms of content has the best claim to being the best-rooted expression of the faith. That's what I'm going to do in the last lecture tomorrow. This one factor of how Judas portrays God and creation would be enough to place this work and others like it instantly in the non-canonical or non-scriptural category by standards even supporters of this new gospel recognize but fail to apply consistently, consistently to their analysis of its historical role. And now I sum up. In conclusion, the gospel of Judas teaches a great divorce between God and the creation that neither Judaism nor Christianity embraced. In, in Christianity, as in Judaism, the creature is responsible to a Creator who directly created. The kind of divorce, the Creator God of Israel, and the creation that it appears in Judas was never acceptable in Christianity or Judaism. So, the claim that Judas presents an alternative to traditional Christianity is a half-truth. But the half-truth... In that half-truth, the key half has been left out. N.T. Wright makes this comparison in discussing the Gospel of Judas. And here we go. The Gospel of Judas is like finding a document about Napoleon discussing the tactics with his officers, only to find the mention of nuclear submarines and B-52 bombers, something that did not exist when he was alive. What our reading through of Judas indicates and what an understanding of the Jewish roots of Christianity reaching back to Judas shows is that this gospel is late, alternative, and aberrant. The Gnostic gospels were not only non-Christian texts when seen in this light, they were anti-Jewish texts as well. As Wright says it, what we are witnessing is a fictional character called Jesus talking to a fictional character called Judas about things the real Jesus and the real Judas would not have understood, or if they had, would have regarded as irrelevant to the kingdom of God, which was the theme and purpose of their common life and mission." In fact, Wright argues that what is afoot is what he calls a new myth of Christian origins. It errs in three ways, according to Wright. It argues, one, that Jesus is not at all as the canonical Gospels, our earliest historical sources portray him. Second, that there were a great variety of early Christianities and early Christian circles that only the 4th century resolved into a single Orthodox Christianity. And third, that the rejected teaching had nothing to do with the kingdom of the one creator God of Israel, but seeking true meaning inside oneself, an idea more in tune with liberal American academics of the 1960s and onwards than the 1st century. He closes his assessment with the remark, Anything will do, it seems, as long as it is not classic Judaism or Christianity." Close quote. The recent hype that these works are evidence of a very early legitimate alternative to Orthodox Christianity is historically false. A misleading and anachronistic attempt to write a revisionist history, ironic in light of these scholars' claims that revisionism is what Orthodox or proto-Orthodox Christianity did centuries ago. It is an attempt to buttress jesus anxiety, but in a way that lacks historical grounding to deconstruct the words of Professor Pagels in her, New T- in her New York Times editorial on gospel truth. The gospel truth is that Judas is not the gospel truth. The gospel of Judas's unusual character and distinctive theology, particularly its story of creation, shows why works like it were never seriously considered as being worthy of recognition or inclusion in the New Testament. Whatever Jesus taught in Christianity is, the Gospel of Judas does not help to get us there. And yes, it does make a difference because Judas takes us to a much different place than the four Gospels. What I am saying is this, that when you are confronted with the discussion on the extra-biblical Gospels and someone asks you whether you've read that stuff and whether you've heard about the other Gospels that deal with Jesus, the points that you should make are these texts are late, they are filled with with the story of creation that is completely diverse than anything Jews and Christians ever believed. And therefore, they do not go back to the first century and they do not prove an alternative Christianity existed in the first century. And so when the question comes up, what about those other Gospels? Those other Gospels about Jesus that never had the chance to make it into the Bible? It won't be a conversation stopper. It will be the start of a conversation hopefully, the start of a conversation about the very real Jesus.
0: You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, Beesondivinity.com.